Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. Tonight, we are with Elizabeth and Dan. Danny Boy wrote the content. It's good to have Dan back. Always great to have Elizabeth Ooh. as well. And tonight's content is letting go or let go, depending on what, how you want to phrase it, because you're not going to get too attached to the title anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we, Janelle and I, say we, we just got back from Atlanta, and that was in February. So just a little caution for, for the listeners out there. We woke up the past two mornings at 4.30 a.m., and then we recorded a podcast live with McAfee School of Theology last night. Yep. And yeah, Which we're back awesome. in Denver time, so just trying to get back into the rhythm. So if we say something that just doesn't sound right, either, and it wasn't edited, well, I don't know about the editing process, but we apologize in advance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're just a little sleepy. Yeah. So how about you, you guys, what you been up to lately? I know this is like, what? This isn't normal. He's not doing the normal routine. You're supposed to say my name and my spirit. No, like they know who you are. What's been going on, Dan? By the way, to embarrass him, our podmaster is amazing and we miss him. But we understand life changes and we're Mm. letting go of that. But Dan was behind like a hundred episodes of this thing. More than that. Thank you for all of your hard work. It's, uh, Yeah. I miss it sometimes, and then I think about your. You just call me when you feel that way. (laughs) I I don't miss your clicking and smacking of your teeth. (laughs) (laughs) You're editing this one, right? For for those that don't know, Dan's an engineer, so every little tick probably bothers him. Well, remember, like 150 episodes where you have to cut down two-hour conversations. (laughs) Yeah, rough. Anyway, uh, yeah, I've been busy being a dad, and. Mostly that and work. I feel like that's hard enough. And uh, you're working on a master's? Nope. Oh, I thought you were taking some classes. I did take some classes okay. and I decided I was not going to pursue a master's okay. degree. <laughs> not that I did poorly. I did pretty good in, in it, but it was super time consuming. Yeah. Like ridiculously and, time And they just got a new house too. Mm-hmm. Um, no. Built... A new house. With my bare hands. Dan, I was going to yeah. say, Dan, Dan, no. Dan designed it and built it. And no. Yeah. Well, it's still a huge process. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And they haven't been married 10 years yet, so it's lucky they're both still alive. Yeah. yeah. Have you? How many years? Six. Ah, seven year itch is coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Have to build a bigger house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Elizabeth... Good to have you back. And what's been going on with you? Oh, life is crazier than usual. I've got two adult kids, but one just moved to California and starting out a new phase of her life. And the other kid was in the hospital for 12 days. So oh. it's it's been a crazy, crazy month. Yeah. But he's doing okay? Yep. Doing great. Good. I think we're all realizing like, yes, some things never change as, as Anna would sing. But a lot of things do, and it's okay. So we'll talk about that tonight, and we appreciate Dan for this content. We do have conversational guidelines. No soapboxes allowed. Nobody gets the last word. We always tell people, please be passionate, though. And two, respect all others and their viewpoints. Three, extend courtesy by listening well. Four, everything is up for discussion. And Janelle's favorite. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which there's probably a lot of that going on at the debate tonight. Mm-hmm. But maybe they need our guidelines for the debate. That's that would what be they excellent. Need. Yeah. I wonder if we're going to know who the Democratic nominee is by the time this yes. show is released. Do you think so? We'll know by Super Tuesday. 
Huh. Well, mm. have a, or have a very good indication. Mark my words. Contested. <laughs> Contested. Oh, no. And then Hillary will buy her way in, right? <laughs> no, it's Bloomberg. It's Bloomberg. That's why Hillary he, by he, his he side. might be the last guy standing. <laughs> why? We're not a 501c3 yet. <laughs> but even if we are, we can still talk politics. We can. We just can't endorse. Can't tell them. Yeah. The, we, so we, as in like Janelle and Ryan, we can't personally, but Brutheology cannot endorse. Right. There's a difference. Uh, yeah, Brutheology definitely doesn't endorse no. a single candidate. We just endorse love and goodness We're all and joy for different people and anyway. all the great virtues that humans should share. The things that shouldn't change. All right. Let's all right. dig in tonight with some letting go. Dan, if you want to start off with some quotes, we can. Or if you want to talk about... Actually, so today, for, for those who are listening, it is Fat Tuesday, so we're entering Lent. So if you want to talk about that to start, that'd be great. Oh, yeah. So I started off in the content with um, just a little bit of personal stuff of how Lent is coming up starting tomorrow. It's Ash Wednesday. Wow. Lent is the 40 days before Easter. And it's typically marked by a time of self-reflection uh historically it's penitence and you know it's kind of like the penitent man shall pass it's kind of like sad (laughs) kind of sad humble vibes (laughs) typically people fast or take on some kind of practice i won't be fasting um and but yeah i've been thinking about non-attachment which is how this came up and practices that kind of foster that and although I didn't suggest any single practice in here, did you notice that? I think you should in the podcast. So Janelle might finally understand it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason I didn't put it in the in the writing is so people could talk about it. Like I, I did it on purpose because I'm like, okay, that's great. How do we apply this? I'm like, that's for you to find out. <laughs> None. So I was bemoaning to Ryan on the flight out to Atlanta that... I don't get this. I try. I have, we've had lots of Buddhist guests, uh, friends with Diana, who's a priest, and as much as we talk about non-attachment, my brain is still confused. So we will keep working on that tonight. Dan is going to teach me his ways, and maybe I'll figure wow. it out finally. So the quote you have here at the top, it is not from Thich Nhat Hanh, but it's based on Thich Nhat Hanh's kind of thesis premise yeah, theme of... Yeah. It's, it's from an article that discusses Thich Nhat Hanh's thought around this. Um, it's it's in the good, resources. Yeah, it's a good place to start. So non-attachment only happens when our love for another extends beyond our own personal expectations of gain or our anticipation of a specific desired outcome. So Janelle, how do you feel about that statement? We'll start with you. <laughs> I don't know. I have a really hard time detaching like outcomes from actions. I I don't. It doesn't make sense. I don't know how to say it. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like cuz you if you don't know what you're aiming at, how do you get there? If you don't know what the end is, like how like how do you get there? Sure. Yeah, I I think it's and this kind of these kinds of questions came up in our table um last week when we were discussing this topic and I think the goal is not so much to not have the desires for certain outcomes, but to be flexible. Mm -hmm. 
right? And non-attachment is that vehicle for flexibility. And within the context of relationships, it allows you to love someone better because when they don't meet your expectations, even though you may have expectations, you are flexible and can move. So is this primarily, so maybe I have it in the wrong category. Is this for everything in life or is this meant primarily in relationship with other humans? I think it's for everything, everything, materialistic things and mm -hmm. relationships and yeah. And the reason I focus on relationships is because that's kind of, um, something that we could kind of all universally could talk to from our experience. So it didn't require somebody to be from a specific, you know, religious tradition or something like that. But this would apply to any belief idea. It could be, it, you could apply it just to yourself, yeah. your expectations for yourself. I love what you said about non-attachment actually allows you to love somebody deeper because you can be flexible when they're, they don't make the choices you like. Because the, the whole idea of non-attachment has always fascinated me, and it's one of the things about Buddhism that I like. But I've also always pushed it away because I am deeply attached to my relationships and I never want to give up the love and attachment I feel for people. But especially, I mean, both my kids are adults now, so it's so true that now they are completely making their own decisions. And if I choose not to be flexible, then I will lose them. And and so to be non-attached to their decisions will help me love them better. I think that the way you said it explained it better for me. Yeah. And, um, let's see some somewhere here. So in the, I don't know what paragraph that would be. I'll just read it. Um, so, so what does letting go in this context look like in everyday life? And then I go on to say, you may be thinking to yourself, why would I let these things go? These are the most important things, quote unquote things in my life. And I, and I say that non-attachment does not mean apathy, apathos, without feeling, but rather is a path to compassion feeling with. It is a way of developing deeper concern rather than detachment. So I think by releasing our grip from, because it's usually the things that we care about the most that we hold on to the tightest, if we can learn to, over a long time, (laughs) let go, I think it in that space we can listen in the context of relationships, we can listen better. And from that listening, we can love better. And again, this is something that I'm, I'm no expert whatsoever. The reason I wanted to write about this is because I have a lot of work to do. I think now having a kid, it's like you said, it's, it's helpful to, to learn now so that when they're teenagers, yeah. you can be flexible. Well, that's the thing about this concept at every stage of your life, whether you know it or not, you have to deal with this concept because Mm -hmm. when you're like, I was thinking when I was in my teens and early twenties, the thing that I had to let go of and, and deal with in terms of change was relationships. Oh God, my boyfriend broke up with me. I'm never going to find somebody like him again. Or I broke up with my boyfriend and, and at the time that feels so intense and, yeah. and you can't imagine anything worse, but at every stage of your life, a new thing comes along and a new thing changes and you have to face it again. Am I going to roll with the changes and accept the changes or am I going to get bogged down in, in all of these expectations I had? 
So how do you let go of the feelings? So sometimes I think it's almost, I, w- I would think tangibly, like as far as humans being, it's necessary to let go of feelings, but then that could be damaging because that leads to some repression. But what I mean by that is let's say, let's say you do get dumped when you're 16 years old, or let's say, you know, you're in your twenties and you lose your job, your dream job, or your kid, you know, you're in your forties and your kid does something just horrible and you, you know, beyond stuff that we want to even talk about and imagine as parents here. So those things do happen. And then, so you're attached to these people, but then the feelings are there. And so that it, something like that happens again, I'm just kind of curious what that looks like to, to let go of those feelings. Cause those feelings are attached to these, these memories and those memories and will creep into your present. So, so Dan, uh, can you help us figure that one out? Because I, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm the only one here. I've dealt with relationships that have gone sour and bad, whether that's been colleagues of mine, not you, Janelle, by the way, uh, or you. friends or friends of mine, which Janelle and I've talked about previous yeah. friendships and, and that still, you know, years later, they affect me. Yeah. So I, on, on one level, I think there's one could look at it as a naivety, right? Like it's it's naive to approach. And I'm going to keep talking about relationships just because it's, again, super, very easy to talk about whether it's. Um, a friendship, uh, a parent with their child or a partnership, whatever it is. Um, I think, I think the, what's good about, um, non-attachment is that you approach whether it's an old relationship or a new relationship with fresh eyes. Um, so you meet somebody for the first time or maybe like over a long period of time and they start reminding you of maybe somebody who hurt you like your natural inclination is like, okay, I'm going to protect myself now, but you may not know, like those are good, um, instincts to have. They, they protect us. Um, and obviously there's some limits to this, right? Like if, if you've been in an abusive relationship, like this is not, this is not detachment. This is not dissociative kind of behavior. Um, but I think you open yourself up to, the possibility of something new and beautiful happening. Whereas if you shut yourself out that that's not possible anymore. Have you read anything or heard of anything about this being similar to what happens when you do EMDR? So EMDR is a treatment where it's, it's a very strict protocol that's done by a therapist where it, you're activating both sides of the brain. So you're either holding buzzers or you're tapping or looking at the things and you go back into a memory and basically you reframe that memory and disconnect from the emotion of it. So you maintain the memory, you maintain the vision of that person or whatever happened, but the emotion of it is blunted. I guess is the way I would say it. And I found it really helpful in some of these really painful experiences to go through this process. And so what you were saying really resonates with like that experience. And I wonder if maybe they've figured out a way to at least do that on a small scale for specific instances through this protocol. That is something that we can then also learn on our own through meditative practice. Yeah. So my, my primary, so it's funny cause I really wanted to write about centering prayer, Yeah. but you guys had like a whole speaker. Yeah. We just did that. <laughs> so what I did was I talked about the same thing, <laughs> but in a different way. 
So I used Buddhism on purpose. You talked about the rootedness of why that's important. Yeah, I did. Um, so I, I picked Buddhism because people, I feel like, find that Buddhism non, non-threatening, at yeah. least during this time. Maybe in the future it might be not so, but I don't know. Um, it's easier to talk through a Buddhist framework than it is like a Christian one. People will get triggered and just shut themselves out. Um, and then um, second, it was more about the goal, right? The, this, the goal being letting go. Um, the path that I found most helpful is centering prayer, which I haven't done in a long time in that's what I plan on doing during Lent. And it feels weird to talk about this publicly now on a podcast. I feel like it's doomed now, (laughs) but, um, I was actually listening to a four part talk. It's pretty long. It's like an hour each, uh, from Cynthia Bourgeau who wrote the heart of centering prayer. She's awesome. Yeah. She's with the center for action and contemplation with Richard Rohr and James Finley. But if you're just getting started, I don't recommend starting there. No, you don't start. Because you (laughs) will freak out because I did that. You wouldn't start with that book or with her talks. No. Um, You might want to start with something from Father Thomas Keating. But um, anyway, in in one of her talks, she she talked about how this practice is for like there's a narrow bandwidth of people that this practice is not beneficial for. And it's people with uh, a certain level of trauma in their life where their normal state of being is dissociative. Yep. Or maybe that's Mm -hmm. their trauma response is to detach. Yep. Because this practice could, it's, you're touching on that space, right? Between non-attachment and detachment. Yep. And you wouldn't want to do that. It's just not healthy for that person. At least not for, you know, a long they recommend 20 minutes twice a day, right? which is pretty long and you wouldn't want to cultivate that. Right. So she said that she personally met somebody who was really interested in this and quickly realized that they had a lot of trauma. So she, she did centering prayer with them two minutes and then suggested a more concentrative meditation or an embodied uh, practice. Yeah. It could be yoga. It could be, there's a bunch of embodied um, practices that I don't know about, but so I do want to say that there's a little yeah, disclaimer. It's nothing is for everyone. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, if you, if you struggle with that, I guess I would not recommend centering prayer or a, a meditative practice that is about letting go. So like even when, when people do a mindfulness practice, they're, they're focusing on their breath mm-hmm. so that that's just enough like mental stimulation for you to like, kind of stay present, present, awake or whatever. Yeah. And centering prayer, you completely let go of every thought. And, and by thought, they mean, uh, your faculties. So like your reason, memory, even feelings. And, uh, this comes from a Catholic background. So father Thomas Keating would say, even if the blessed Virgin Mary, you know, (laughs) shows up during your practice, you say, hello, I'll see you later. Like, please wait. I'm practicing right now, letting go. And you let go of that. And and that reminds me of the, of, uh, in Buddhism that it's apparently, I don't know if the Buddha actually said this, but it said like, if you, if you're along the path and you find the Buddha, kill the Buddha. And yet things seem so urgent in the moment. If I don't do this right now, you know, if I, if I don't, 
I, I am needed in this. So talk about the ego a little bit because I think that's pretty critical. You don't have, we can all talk about it. You don't, I don't Dan, you don't have to, but I mean, I think that's, that's a huge part of this. Ego and the need to control. Yeah. That's th- a huge part of letting go of the attachment. Yeah. I, I would almost equate the two. Um, I wouldn't quote me on, I don't know if like people that develop centering prayer or other, um, meditations that lead you to non-attachment um would say that but i think it necessarily involves an ego death of some sort ego being the story the narrated self the things that we tell about ourselves that that kind of bolster a a sense of self so you know i'm an engineer i'm a coloradan I'm Puerto Rican. I, you know, all these little things that you're like, oh, this is definitely like who I am. It's letting go of those things. Some of them you work so hard for. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to let go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let let go of being a, a, a husband, a spouse, a father. The, like the things that were like, whoa, man, like what does that leave? What does that look like? It's It's letting go of. Of, and I of that I defining you. Yes. yes. And I don't mean that yeah. like, hey, hey guys, go out and divorce your wives. That's not what I'm talking about here. No. <laughs> but to have to have that so much a part of your ego and that you can't let it let those things go and that your ego always has to announce who you are, like I am this, I am this. That death of the ego is a huge thing that you lose you realize you have very little control over many things in your life. And that that at our table, we talked a lot about the death of ego and how it affects this whole attachment and non-attachment thing. But then who are you? So what's crazy about this is I we've all had to redefine ourselves throughout history, yeah. unless you've had the same job ever since after college, like then I've been really impressed. But even the last seven years for me, we moved back to Denver here and suddenly... Ryan's no longer this local church pastor. I'm a stay-at-home dad. And that really did some work on my ego for many years. And people would say, well, what do you do? Because that question is the most important question in Western society. You know how many men don't know how to deal with the answer that I give them? Oh, my primary job is, is a stay-at-home dad. I'm, I take care of my kids. Existential crisis. <laughs> yes, they don't know, like, what in the world? How do you do that? You know, and it's, and it's also, it's a, it becomes a societal, you know, hierarchy of, well, you're definitely not really a man. But then, so then we have Lauren, right? And so she's this female physician. My wife is, that's who I'm talking about now, guys. And they know, but you out there don't know. (laughs) And so so she has the opposite, um, sort of like she's supposed to be the one at the home with the kids. And so when she's now out at public with the kids, she gets these like, oh, isn't it nice you get some time with your kids right now? I mean, it just makes her feel like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, so we're both, we both have dealt with this back and forth of, it's, this is this is not our societal standard, but what? How do you get rid of societal standards internally? Um, and and I and I I've I could t- tell you my story, but you know that's that's kind of boring because it's taken me seven years and I'm still struggling with it. <laughs> I think we're going to be struggling with it forever, is what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think part of it is that when we bolster the ego, you know, we keep telling stories about ourselves and making it this very concrete thing. Um, when, when we bump against something that might threaten it, um, we get defensive and, and that's how, that's our posture toward life. And if you have a, I mean, the ego isn't, so 
uh, there's a really cool quote from Cynthia Bourgeau. She says the ego is not our enemy. It's the scab on the wound of our living. And that blew me away when I, yeah. when I first heard that. The scab wow. on the wound of our living. Yeah. So there's like a, an inherent woundedness, which mm-hmm. is also very Buddhist. Like Jesus's wounds too. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, I just want to leave it there. I don't want to take that analogy any further, but I think, I think it's a better posture, uh, an, an open handed posture toward life and the world I think is better than one that's clinging to these things that are impermanent. You know, what happens when you lose the job? What happens when you lose the spouse or the child or, you know, when all of a sudden you have to move back to Texas, Ryan? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's out in the public. (laughs) No, people know. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about this this entire time of what what does the new me look like in a a place I haven't been in 20 years? And all of a sudden it's anxiety, right? Like, oh God. All the anxiety. Yeah. Because in Texas, oh man, you got to be a man's man. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the issue, I think part of the issue with, with the ego is that, um, we base our worth on the stories that we tell about ourselves. Right. So you say that I am an engineer or whatever, when you're not quote unquote performing as well at work, all of a sudden it's devastating, right? This is who you are and you're doing a bad job. So you're living in fear and, and woundedness. Mm -hmm. You talked about, um, the woundedness and Buddhism talks about suffering and the role of suffering in our life and that all is suffering. And, um, that's something that I've also struggled with because I don't want to look at life. It it can seem like a negative thing. I don't want to be the person who walks around saying, Oh, life, woe is me. Life is suffering, but yet it's inescapable that, um, change brings suffering to your life. Change brings good things to your life sometimes too. But there is always something that is going to be a critical stressor in your life. And, and how you deal with that, that's what, what we're talking about. It. For me right now, a huge part of it is letting go of I am a mother. Because I was a single mother, that was my entire goal in life was to get my kids raised through a tough situation. Now my kids are adults and don't really need me. And... So a huge part of my ego and what I think I am is gone. And, yeah. but it, that it's what I was saying earlier is every stage of your life, you have this at some level, you have to either deal with it or you're just going to go through life thoughtless and not learn from, excuse me, not learn from the hard lessons that come up in your life. Yeah. But here's the doozy. You're still a mother. Yeah. And you're still going to be a mother. Yeah. It just looks different. Yep. It it's changed. The role has changed. And it's part of accepting that and learning to flow with it. I I wonder I wanted to ask Dan a question. Dan so Dan and I come from a very similar background, except he was the tongue speaking variety of what I was raised with. So I think what I'm hearing tonight is this we were raised um, in a holiness tradition where the goal was to like become free of sin and to live a perfect life. And it wasn't always communicated that way in all parts of the country or in all parts of our traditions. 
but there's definitely this thread of like you need to become perfect and I think part of the hang up I've got here is that for 20 plus years of my life I had to edit every single thing I did every action every word I spoke the clothes I wore how I spent my time my money all of that was being in my perception and often communicated directly all of that was being weighed and measured at every moment about whether or not I was holy enough whether or not I was sanctified and I I wonder if that's part of my struggle because my whole world was outcome my whole world was about proving to you that God had sanctified me and I understand that that's not what Wesley meant and I understand that that's completely toxic but I'm but that's my experience and so and it has been life-altering to walk away from that and try to reorient a way of being in the world and not lean into those fears and especially the anxiety in the last few years of like just everything um and it's i mean it's started it's manifesting physically for me now um and when i deal with the church specifically um those things can get stirred up with very small triggers so i don't know if if you have any thoughts on like kind of how our upbringing and this intersect and maybe if there was a point in your journey where you wrestled with that yeah well first i want to commend you for doing the work or allowing yourself to kind of step away from that after how many years 30 35 that's a lot of count from the cradle that's a thick neurological network Uh, yeah and that's not going to go away in seven years no so you're on the journey yeah um for me i was a lot younger I wasn't fully bought into the system. Yeah. I've always been a little skeptical of it, even when I was very involved. So there's that. And I had a lot of different, um, even though I kind of grew up in similar kinds of churches, I saw a lot of slightly different expressions of them. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like, I think my experience would have been different if I lived in the same place, like in the same town with the same people. Like, I think it would have been different, but I grew up military. So I was moving every two or three years. So that was just enough like just, of a shift yep. to not be fully invested in anything. So it's like a blessing in disguise, maybe. Yeah, no, totally. But there's also probably issues with that, right? Like I have maybe a harder time con- committing or, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> and also uh, pointing out that none of the stuff that we're talking about today is a substitute for therapy, medication, right, whatever absolutely. you need, right, for your mental health. Um, but yeah, I think just in terms of age, like when, when I started realizing certain things and, and when you yeah. did, that gap is I think significant. Maybe, maybe moving, let you lean into those questions. Whereas my experience was more, if I would start to push a boundary, then, I mean, all hell broke loose mm-hmm. and you better tuck her down and make sure you're wearing your skirt on Sunday and don't cut your hair and button that button and you better behave. 
or you're at risk. And, and so there was always this self-correcting mechanism, which, which I discovered in reading The Hidden Brain and his description of the cult and how that functions. That is very much like how this was reinforced to me. Yeah, and I think now that I'm thinking about it a little more, I think it also helped to to see even in the in small ways how my parents disagreed with mm-hmm. the kind of places that we were worshiping in. Yeah. And they would openly talk about that like around me, maybe not with me. Sometimes they would include me in the conversation even when I was younger. And I think that helped. Yeah. Right? Because if you see even if it's a slight disagreement you're like, oh, "Okay, so that's like not the only way." It's not the even only if it's way. like a very small thing like you know, they say to wear skirts all the time, but you know what? Women can wear pants too. You're like, huh, okay, so that's different. Yep. <laughs> and it's okay and nothing's happening. And you know, that, that wasn't like my enti- the entirety of right. my upbringing. We actually ended up going to churches that were like a little more, I don't know, less fundamentalist from a appearance standpoint, yeah. but still in like theology and ex- expression of the faith it was, but... In my life, part of the letting go process is letting go of the thought that I'm right because I was raised a fundamentalist Baptist and we thought we were right. God was in our back pocket. He fit there perfectly and we knew we knew everything. I was raised to be able to convert other people to the faith and with apologetics and know what I believe and all of that bullshit. And so a huge part of my life journey has been saying, I really don't really don't know the answers to all of these things that I think about so much of the time. And that's okay. Yeah. It's okay to let go of the fact that I'm not right, that I don't know everything. Yeah. It's so funny. Whenever someone mentions apologetics, this now comes to mind because I was the queen at that. Like I knew all the things and then I was, our listeners are like, Oh yeah, she was (laughs) awesome. (laughs) And then I debated in college. And so like, this was, this was a huge part of my identity, probably my Mm -hmm. ego. And I have books still up in my library that I need to burn (laughs) that are apologetic books that have like... No, don't burn them. Oh, Oh, no, it's fun to burn them. Yeah. I mean, I've thrown them away. I've shredded them. (laughs) I mean, I have books that the page on paganism or Wicca has a warning. Now, you must make sure that you are right with Jesus. In a spiritually good place before before you even read this. Don't read this if you're not in the good place. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, I think about that now and oh the interfaith work I do. And yeah. I'm like, what a shitty posture to yeah. have toward another religion. And Isn't it? Another set of people. Like, mm. I, that, this is not helpful. Mm-hmm. But we were right. And we, we, and were we right. knew how to tell them they were wrong. Yeah. 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 I mean, this brings up a whole new thing, Elizabeth. How, I mean, all of us around the table here have have shed that skin of, of old religion. Put on another version of religion, old religion, new version. So it's like this constant shedding of religion and theology and spirituality and interdisciplinary things. Like, you know, you're doing things that your old self would have been like, Oh yeah. You would have had to lay hands. Oh or, yeah. Or no, d- d- actually Dan's, oh, yeah. Dan's posse would have laid hands because, because right, right. yours didn't know how to do that. And the gold but flakes would have fallen have, But you would have figured out the method to feed, yes, <laughs> to exercise those demons. So there's, there's something extraordinary about, I lack certainty. I lack theological truth. And we were just talking to Dr. Robert Nash and he, he starts off his class. Like he said, you know, Hey, how many of you out there, if you, between zero to a hundred percent, 
what's the percentage you know about God? Yeah. Give yourself a number. Mm-hmm. And then the first one of the guys had said, what, 60, 70 percent. And he said, well, you come up here and you can teach the class for the rest of the semester. I mean, yeah. how much do we really know about even, you know, God and, and what it means to. I mean, theology is such a huge thing. This is what we do. We brew theology. No, it's not. And after, I mean, I have apologetics books. <laughs> it's very simple. What, what's the name of the book? Uh, the, uh, the Case for Christ. It's all right there. Exactly. Right like, exactly. All the answers oh, you man. need are right there. I mean, out of like a, this point, what, 160-something episodes, you think like, wow, people, if they've listened that long, they go, there is a lot out there. There's, you yeah. there's no certainty. Yeah. And that freaks yeah. people out with just that, just that theological abstract, like, I need to know this truth. And it has to be, a, has, because it's, it's about salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then for you, it's Janelle, about it's about eternal. sanctification. Yep. It's about big stuff like burning yeah. in hell versus playing harps. Yeah. Well, let's shift gears here. So, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh here, this Zen Buddhist monk that a lot of us have read, and I, I highly recommend him, by the way. I've read a couple of his books, too. Yeah, I think he is. He's got some, even some really good Instagram memes. If you just want to start it there, they're actually pretty damn good. But he talks about letting go as a way of learning to love more completely. And then Dan, you outline these four forms of non-attachment. And I think this is this would be a good place for us to spend our last I don't know twenty minutes or so before we say goodbye. But I think this is pretty critical. So number one, we got. Um, Loving kindness. I'm not going to pronounce these words in a language that I don't know. So I'm just going to say loving kindness. Number two is compassion. Number three, gratitude and joy. And number four is equanimity. So what do we do? Danny boy, where do we start? How does this, what does this look like as far as opening yourself up in a non-attached posture and yet diving more deeply into relationships that we're not to be attached to? I should just read Thich Nhat Hanh's quote. but with loving kindness we already kind of touched on that earlier talking about how when we have a that kind of non um a certain posture toward the world and particularly relationships we can listen deeply and know what to do and what not to do to make others happy um it i think it fosters a compassionate um, response to people which is actually the second one. Yeah. And, and this isn't something that we, we, we do in order in order to get to this place of, of nirvana or whatever that state is that you would like. But these are just helpful virtues uh, that, are, that are tangible and practical that you can live out. So for you around the table, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, which one of these do you resonate with the most? And which one is the, is the hardest for you? And which one do you want to dive into more deeply? And, I think, and also, I want to say what I like about this, because this, this can be something with any religion, Christianity and Judaism and, and Islam, you could say, yeah, these are aspects of, of our faith that we would all uphold. And when somebody is doing really good at one of them, um, it's not about that person. Yeah. It's, it's, we have to remember we're, we're communal. And so I always, I always love what Paul said about, you know, rejoicing when people rejoice and suffer when they suffer. So if somebody has got this gift and this thing, you like leaning into them is maybe a helpful thing to do, you know, and for that person who's got the gifts, not to be the badass, but say, actually share your gift and not right. in an egotistical way. I've always, I think we've missed Paul's instructions so, so much. And that one is critical, but with these specifically, like you have to, you have to realize where, where you lack, I guess, if, if you will. So maybe we should start there. Give well, vulnerable. So it's the, the thing I don't understand is when you become detached from the outcome, you then have 
deeper compassion. I don't understand. And and I know that you've said that, Dan. I know one of our other guys that's here, he said that, that that's how it manifests, but I don't understand. My brain says detached, and it says that means I don't care. But then you guys are telling me it means you care more. So I'll use you as an example okay. with relationship to yourself. From the story that you've told about yourself, which is technically your ego, but we'll forget about that. Part. No, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, no, she's I'm there. just being funny. You know, you were attached to being Nazarene. Yeah. And at some point, you let go of the outcome, which was being ordained and serving in ministry in the Nazarene Church and like getting more deeply involved, right? Yeah. And it's not until you let go of that. That you could show some level of compassion, loving kindness, actually listen to your body, to, your, to yourself, to who you are, and move on to whatever was next, which might as well have been the Nazarene church, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was right. whatever's next. So I think you're it already didn't been feel on that way, though, because I felt horrible. Like I felt completely and totally lost for like three years. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really in the last 18 months that I feel like I have direction and I have to hold that very loosely because there is no path. It's just entering into the opportunities in front of me and walking with them as long or as loosely as I'm allowed to. And on, and really lately just saying like, there's no guarantee that this will be here in six months or a year and trying to find a way to be okay with that, which I'm not sure my body's okay with that, but like, but it's not trained to be okay with that. So, but you see, you're already doing it. Your brain doesn't, (laughs) but I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, and there's, I I would say there's nothing really that says that it's not going to be painful and that there isn't suffering involved. Um, especially if life is suffering, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, I think that that pain is that, ego slowly slowly being chipped away and it hurts especially if you've been building it up for 30 years plus and i have no choice like i can remain sick on the couch and immobile or i can choose to go out into the world and try again because if i don't choose to try again there isn't going to be anything that sounded like a choice (laughs) but but it well it, it it became a choice but at first, it was so impossible to even see that. Like, what? Well, no. Okay, so I can't articulate this. It was which choice? How oh, do oh, I? Which sorry, choice? when he said which choice, I'm like, there's a choice that's witchy. Well, that, that's not off the table yet. <laughs> like W H I C H. Like, which one? Resources yeah. on that. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's it's that I was in a place where with with my path literally like feeling like like if it were on a piece of paper like it was erased and so now how do i choose how do i choose which way to go and i sat in that place for years mm-hmm. continuing to stay involved we started brew theology in the middle of that we other things have happened yeah but. small things <laughs> you know started brew theology wrote a book or edited a book Maybe how many pers- events? How many events? I mean, mm, maybe my perception of reality is <laughs> so like from, from the from the egoic perspective, you're doing great. <laughs> Rock on, sister. 
yeah, I don't, I don't feel that most of the time. Yeah. So I, so part of this, at least from a Christian standpoint, the, the, um, the practice of centering prayer, they say that it's, um, you sit in meditation and it's consenting to the action and presence of God. Now we're so used to like, okay, I'm going to pray so I can hear something from God or feel some kind of feeling. And they say, let all of that go and simply be in God's presence. Now, that doesn't mean that there's times where you spend some time sitting and you're pissed off that nothing's happening or you're like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Which is what I tell myself most of the time. <laughs> the ego coming in. It's like, hey, what are you what are you doing? Stop wasting you're not, time. You're not being productive. Yep. Who are you kidding? This is not who you are. You're just trying to take on another identity. Are oh, you? Yeah. And then like the ego telling uh-huh. you that you're like building another ego that's usually what happens well so rob nash he said this great thing on the podcast last night he he had someone come he's a baptist and not, was not, not southern but he is southern and he's a baptist and he's a baptist and so <laughs> very different very <laughs> they are. but he had someone come to him and say can can i be a buddhist christian and he said well sure you can be a buddhist and be a christian but you're always going to be part of the southern buddhist convention you're always going to have this identity that you started with. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not going to disappear. Like you're still going to be a Christian, but sure. Go, go add that in or integrate that as well. But that, that was actually, it was really transformative in the moment because I catch myself calling myself a Nazarene still. And I, I am not Nazarene. They, they would actively kick me out at this point. But maybe I don't have to hold that as tightly to what it always meant. But it's always going to be part of my story. Sure. And and even now as I wrestle with agnosticism and those kinds of things, like, but I'm Christian. Like, unless I have some radical transformation or experience, like, I'm probably just, I'm going to be Christian with questions. And that's who I am. And that's okay. Um, But it was just helpful to me to like hear that. That like you don't actually have to erase this thing that was. It's okay to let it be there, but let it be transformed with what comes next. Mm -hmm. I think so many times, especially you and I who grew up in this strong faith tradition, we expect permanence. We expect yeah. it oh, to yeah. go through our life always being Nazarene or Baptist. And there was no question in our mind that anything else would happen. Yep. And and for me, this whole, we talked about this earlier, that the whole concept of impermanence and change is hard for me, but yet I'm also drawn to that, to wanting to accept that and wanting to just say, Everything changes. We are not in control. So how am I going to act when everything changes? Yeah. Um, and this, we talked about my table that I learned this lesson at a young age. It hit me in the face when I was 25 because I was married six months when my first husband died. And so at a very young age, I thought everything changes. Yeah. You never get to hold on to anyone. Nothing is permanent. And even now that's true because I have these kids who are my everything, 
but everything has changed and they're, they're adults and, um, they've gone their own way and our relationship changes and every relationship you have changes. You lose friends to, they don't like who you become. So they leave you. Um, I've had good friends die in the last couple years and accepting that is so not a Western thing. Yeah. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about suffering. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to admit that everyone we love will die or we will die first and so we won't see it. Those are things we're not allowed to talk about or think about. But the older you get, the more you stare it in the face. Yeah. And and what are you going to do with it? Are you going to just realize it's all impermanent? Yeah. I think one of the helpful liturgies that it brings me back to this, the Passover setting, when you have these, mm. the, the Seder, have you ever done a Seder? Yep. Whether it's a Christian Seder or a Jewish Seder, or a mix of that. Christian Seder. We should yeah. not do Christian Seder. Don't do a Christian Seder. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it works for somebody, you know, hey, it's all good. Yeah. And, anyway, I, and I have disagreements around the table. But there's an asp, there's a part of the, uh, it's about, it's around like the bridge portion of of the meal which is a long meal and they go through this whole experience of of going through the um, you're a slave you're free you're in the desert and now you're in Israel and so it's called Dayenu Mm -hmm. and so well if we would have just been slaves in Egypt and Dayenu it would have been enough Mm -hmm. well if if God would have taken us out of Egypt across the Red Sea and that was it Dianu, it would have been enough. And so they, go, you go through this whole process, and you because you know where the story's headed that they're going to be in this land of Israel, but Israel needs to relearn the story and know that regardless of the outcome, of your, if you're going to be this nation, this city on a hill, it would have been enough even if you were in the desert with the Ten Commandments. All is good, um, and it, I think what it does it create that creates gratitude when you say, at least for me, because I've participated in these before. Like, yeah, you know what? Like, think about my life. Like, I've had a, I've had a really rich, great life, and yet I've had some shitty moments within them. But not, you know, everybody can tell their story. Everybody's had good days and bad days. But there's something about the gratitude here and the joy. And this is the number number three portion where, if you just if you can realize what Elizabeth, what you were saying that impermanence is something that you, you have you have to come to grips with. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Uh, you don't know if that friend is going to leave you or if that kid is going to be successful or, but you don't, you don't know and you can't control it, but you had that moment with that person. And I think that does, cre- it creates joy and gratitude and it creates, it does create a deeper compassion for sure. Yeah. Cause then you, you do stop yourself and go, I, I, I have no control over the outcome of this relationship. So I'm just, I'm just going to love this person in this moment yeah. and this I'm gonna, time I'm gonna what be we have and not worry about what the future holds. You, you're just thankful for what you've got. Yeah. You know, you had asked which one of these we struggle with. That's the one for me, gratitude and joy, because we've so been formed and this is part of my own ego and probably most of our egos is that, you know, when somebody gets the job or has something awesome happen in their life, rather than, you know, rejoicing with them and, and joining them in gratitude and joy, it's like, wait, why didn't I get that opportunity? Mm-hmm. Or why are they on vacation and I'm not? Mm-hmm. 
I totally deserve this. I, this, I, and it's all self-referential. So I, I struggle with that a lot. People say someone's on vacation. You've probably heard this before. Must be nice. Yeah. I have people in my life that will say that. Well, it must be nice. I go, yeah, it is nice. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice. You should try it. It's called a day off. It's a Sabbath. If you take a Sabbath day, you know, I mean, this is a big part of Judeo-Christian, and I'm sure other faiths have this too. Like, it's good. It's good. It's healthy. It makes sense. And yet, yeah. it's like you feel judged if you take a day and enjoy yourself, or if mm-hmm. you take a nap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really. I don't do. feel judged today for taking a nap. <laughs> Waking up at four thirty a.m. Yeah. two days in a row. It was a worthy nap. It was worthy. Talks about no longer cling to some other longed-for result. And, and that's just so, I mean, that's where you lose the joy because you want that result for yourself. You're, I see it in myself. I, I just recently experienced this feeling like, damn, why is it always my life? You know, why are so many things in my life hard? But we just, we cling to everything's going to be good in my life. Everybody in my life, everything's going to go fine. We're not going to have any more problems. I'm clinging to that version of my life. And yet that's not life for anybody. No, it, that's nobody's life. Yeah. And unfortunately, our our religions, rather than cultivating these this healthy form of non-attachment where we can actually be in service to others um, and love each other better, we use religion as a way to bolster ego and, you know, further solidify and create these identities where we're all insulated. Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of what we've been saying here has triggered the thought of like, this is impacting the political process that we're in right now, because everything has to either be absolute or permanent. Mm-hmm. And if we could just accept that like flexibility and movement inside of the system is normal, that swings from left to right happen are normal, mm-hmm. they're historical. They don't have to mean that we have to go all the way to the top of the arc each time. Mm -hmm. Um, We can go partway up the arc and then swing back. And we can find ways to all live in the midst of that without having to really to harm each other and to exclude each other and to blow up about it. Like that rigidity that Mm -hmm. I think the religious voice in America is often creating. Like sit down at the table and listen to the 18-year-old that had an abortion and why that was the choice she made and that there's nothing in your policy that would change her mind. Have the conversation instead of demanding what she should or shouldn't do with her body. Have a conversation. Listen. See where that problem comes from because maybe that problem comes from that she's poor and can't afford a baby and is responsible is reacting out of a sense of responsibility of like, I can't do this. Maybe she comes from a super traumatic background and is like, I don't want to pass this on. That's not an illegitimate thing. Maybe she, maybe she just doesn't want to. And you don't get to choose for her. But in um, politics, there is no flexibility allowed these days in right. America. Yeah. If on the few occasions that I've said, something that oh this republican made a good decision here i've got lambasted by my liberal friends for even saying that there's no middle ground allowed there's no flexibility because our ego in politics right now demands that we're right demands that we don't listen to each other 
when in reality there's a whole lot of agreement there's a whole lot of people in the middle who really agree on a lot of things but it's our extreme left and our extreme right that we're listening to and and are dominating the narrative right now yep yeah and, and i don't think non-attachment means that we won't have convictions so Thich Nhat Hanh himself you know he's he's vietnamese zen buddhist he was in vietnam during the vietnam war and was part of nonviolent protest in that country, so much so that he was exiled. He actually just recently returned to Vietnam. He had been oh, living wow. in France, lived in the States for a little bit. And it was actually um, pretty solid evidence. They definitely met. There's pictures and everything. But um, there's pretty good evidence that if Martin Luther King Jr. hadn't met Thich Nhat Hanh, he wouldn't have opposed the Vietnam War, mm. which is when he really started to get in trouble. Yeah. And eventually he was assassinated Yeah. between that and the poor people's campaign. But yeah, if you're a Christian and want to know about Thich Nhat Hanh's influence, MLK, Thomas Merton, now recently uh, David Steindl-Rust, the Benedictine yeah. monk, hmm. Father Thomas Keating, all the contemplatives. And there's a huge overlap there too with Judaism. I, I just found that- Abraham Joshua Heschel met Thich Nhat Hanh yeah, as well. Yeah, okay. He's- He's my jam. Love me some Heschel. Because <laughs> I just found that out as we did MLK events here in Denver this year, that there was a huge collaboration between Jews and blacks during the civil rights movement. And it, in, in some ways, that was a very unique moment in history where they stood together against oppression and, and hasn't really been able to be replicated since then. But, but, I mean, rabbis marching with MLK and because they knew, they knew the pain, they knew the cost, they knew what was at stake. Yeah. And that, that's one of the things I love about interfaith participation. If you can just like get outside of your religious ego long enough to listen to another tradition and to let another tradition speak into your gaps and find the wisdom in it. That's where change happens. Another fun, just because I have to say it, another fun uh, point of contact between East and West. So he mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh and various people in the West. Um, there's also Gandhi's influence on Martin Luther King. It's actually mm-hmm. where he learned nonviolent resistance. Yeah, He actually visited India. And just recently, within the last couple of months, a letter was found from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote Gandhi, wanting to go visit and, wow. and learn from really? him. Really? And he says, so like, cool. I want to be at your disciple. Like, it's, it's oh, in, that's so in writing. Oh, Bonhoeffer? Yeah, Bonhoeffer. Oh, my God. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Religionless Christianity right there. Ooh, talk wow. about ego dropping that. That guy. Wow. I mean, talk about story. The, the, e- like, the ego that's bolstered in Germany. Lutheran, you know, that's these are strong identities. And for him to reach out to some dude in India, that's completely and in the 19 whatever 30s, 20s. Now, think about if if we had known that 50 years ago and and we started and people who um you know follow Bonhoeffer and follow all these people we think are rigid, what if we had allowed ourselves to think he was willing to listen to? people who aren't of his religion and what a concept <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's what's, Wait, that what's guy, interesting is that like i wrote the best book on discipleship so of course like if he's focused on that yeah. he would be open he would fully yeah and he, he mentioned yeah I, I should 
send you guys the letter. It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I like it. I like this. Intra and interfaith, um, pol- non, non-political, political, like it's all, it's all connected. I mean, well, we're all in this world together. And Robert Nash, he challenged us. That he's got a book coming out. Yeah, uh, Moving the Equator. Moving the Equator. It's, it got a longer title, but Dr. Robert Nash from McAfee School of Theology. And um, in that, he talks about like the first step, the very first step is cross the street yeah. and meet your neighbor. Yeah. And if there's a tradition that's different than yours in your city, go meet them. Go worship with them. Go eat with them. Take them cookies. Like, who like, doesn't like cookies? That's right. <laughs> you gotta have cookies. I mean, gluten free. They're good. I can make right. them good. I promise. <laughs> um, but like, we're Christians have become so afraid to cross the street. And guys, you serve the creator of the universe. He can handle it if you have dinner with a Buddhist. It's not the end of the world. When I was in college, I took a world of, I had to take a world of religions class. And I purposefully didn't learn anything. And I blocked it all out of my mind because I was so afraid of learning other points of view. What a horrible, horrible, embarrassing thing to admit. But that's how I was raised. Yeah. And that's how a lot of people were raised to not listen because we're so afraid of other points of view and religions and and if your point of view is that fragile yeah what are you doing yeah and you need to think about it and i understand that what i just said sounds like satan speaking in your ear fine (laughs) but like if if your faith is that fragile something's wrong yeah if your faith doesn't allow your intellect to be involved something's really wrong yeah yeah and and the counterpoint is that non-attachment actually moves you away from your intellect to your heart. And I think that's where a lot of that transformation can happen. Cause I yeah. think the intellect is involved in some of these, um, in some of these fears they're thinking about theology, right? They're thinking about apologetics. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yet that. they never take a moment to like find out what they're learning about their apologetics about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I knew well, I knew the five pillars of Islam, mm-hmm. and I probably knew these four things about Buddhism. But, but you knew them only so that you could defeat them. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Ego. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. let's make a challenge out there. We don't do that that often. No. And remember, remember, the ego is not the enemy. We've been talking a lot about the ego, but we have the ego is not. Hey, the be enemy. gracious with your ego. Just don't stroke the ego. Don't feed it. Yeah, it's a balance. Cling to it. No clinging. So as you try to figure out what that looks like in your own life to have non-attachment disciplines even to start contemplative prayer or maybe it's yoga, maybe it's just a walk. Maybe you do just take a walk around your neighborhood with your eyes open or closed. Think about others, releasing of yourself, and then no expectations. I mean, I don't know what that looks like for you, but in a place that is comfortable and then maybe it's just one person in your life. Maybe we challenge people with that in ourselves. One person that you know just needs that openness, that presence, um, without without you being the doctor and the counselor, just just being there. And I think that's that's the dying. That's like that's going to be enough. It's fine. Yeah, you, know, you don't have to fix them or yourself. Just be present. Yeah. And what you might find is that you all of a sudden that, that friendship, that relationship, goes to another, a deeper level. Yeah.
Yeah. Or maybe not. And people know when you're doesn't matter. When you <laughs> doesn't matter, and that's the whole point of this. Nothing yeah. matters at all. Nothing <laughs> matters. I think. I don't you think a lot of people are smart enough to know, like, oh, they're trying to fix me. I mean, just it's just be present. Easier said than done, right? Um, well, mm-hmm. thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, you can email Dan, and we can get you in touch with Dan. You can find Dan on Twitter. Hashtag still don't have a at Brutheology email. Ooh, we should you get, get one of those. I, uh, should, no, I don't want that. He doesn't. He's not attached he's to the Bruce Theology email. He's going to get one anyway. No, I'm really clinging to it. Oh, I should man. not have one. <laughs> we'll, so take, we'll, take, we'll take a vote. If you want Dan to have a Bruce Theology email, you should email Janelle yep. or Ryan. And I vote yes. Um, so, Dan, where do we start? A book recommendation or online resource you found helpful or the Centering Prayer podcast we did a few months ago? I put him on the spot. That's on me. I don't know because it depends on your background, not just like faith background, but just what, what you've tried and what you haven't tried. Some of the stuff that we talked about, whether, you know, kind of your level of trauma in life. And, um, I know Pima Chandra, I don't know if I said that right. Mm -hmm. Is it falling to pieces or when, when things fall apart is one that's been recommended to me. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I always, Lately, I've been recommending more online resources because it's yeah. free. I guess the library is also free <laughs> and you can find these books in a library. But yeah, I would look at some form of contemplative practice. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Some of the resources that I provide in the notes are helpful. Again, it's mostly from a Buddhist point of view, but I think I think it's still helpful um, for Christian contemplative practice. I think um Centering prayer is a good one. And they even say, like you talk to folks from from that kind of centering prayer tradition, it's not like you don't do these other, like the Ignatian spiritual practices or right. Lectio Divina or whatever. It's just you kind of, when you, when you approach centering prayer, you say, hey, that's not what I'm doing right now. Right. And, and you let that go. Doesn't mean that you're never going to do that ever again. <laughs> yeah. Um. And yeah, if you're interested in Centering Prayer, you might also look at uh, the Contemplative Outreach and see if you have one nearby and go sit with some old people and practice together or do some classes. They actually, oh yeah, if you go to their website, they have some online classes. Sweet. Yeah. I think that's CAC.org. Nope. That's Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation, which is also a good resource. If you want to learn about non-attachment, Richard Rohr is a good resource, actually. Yeah, contemplative outreach. Good stuff. If you would like to support Brew Theology at all, you could share this on the line. You can uh, find us at Brew Theology, Facebook, Instagram. Twitter is Brew underscore Theology. And iTunes is like, it's not home base because we're at a Podbean, but iTunes captures, I guess, most listeners. So just rate that review it and then share it with your friends. You can also support us financially as well and not be attached to the almighty dollar and just give it to us. And you can go to the website, brutheology.org donate. There's two ways to donate. You can be a monthly patron or you can just give through PayPal. And so we are working on the paperwork for the 513 C. We're going to be a nonprofit soon ish. It's going to happen. Finally going to happen after three and a half years. It's, it's almost done. Yeah, it's getting there. I actually have an idea for a Patreon or for an idea for patrons. 
Yeah. But I'm not going to say it here. We're, it's off the record, and then you guys can announce it if you we'll think it's a good you idea. When we get it yeah, figured and if, out. You know, if you're out there too and you're with a church or a seminary or a community and you want, if you want to have Ruthiology join you, Janelle and I like to do that stuff. Yeah. So we'll come to your area. We'll do a podcast. We'll have a good time. You supply the beer and we'll supply the fun. <laughs> That's our new tagline. All right. There. Wow. And as theological fun. As uh, the beer I'm drinking tonight says from Avery, beer first, the rest will follow. <laughs> there we go. Peace, everybody. Peace. Peace.